All right, just a reminder on the announcements. So at Saturday morning, we have our men's, our monthly men's prayer breakfast at uh, 7.30 Saturday morning. And then we will have our deacons meeting following that at, at 9, 9 o'clock. Uh, and then just, again, pray for the <coughs> camp out that we don't get rained out. Those of us who've been around Houston a long time, I've seen it dry and I've seen it wet, but I don't think I've ever seen it this wet. Just almost every day getting rain. So anyhow, be in prayer for that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared. Scripture teaches, as we'll see in our study this evening, we're to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But when we do sin, there is a way to recover, and that is through confession. It cleanses us from sin, or God cleanses us when we admit or acknowledge our sin to him, according to 1 John 1, 9. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we have access to your throne of grace because you had a perfect plan of salvation, a plan that would was completely and totally resolve the sin problem, that it would not be dependent upon anything that we do, but totally dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that there he bore in his own body on the tree our sin. And Father, by simply trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. Father, we're thankful that we have the privilege and the freedom still in this country to study your word. We recognize that there are numerous enemies, both internal and external, who seek to destroy these freedoms, who ultimately have as their goal the elimination of the teaching of your word. And Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up leaders in this nation who would alert us to these dangers, who would guide and direct us through these horrible times, and that we might have uh, people who turn back to you and turn to your word. But if that fails to happen, if we're in a scenario such as the one Peter is addressing, we pray that we might be able to uh, live through the fiery trial, trusting in you, enduring, persevering in our obedience, and that you might be glorified in everything that we do. And tonight, as we study, may we come to understand some of the essential issues in our own walk with you and our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we are down uh, studying about the sin nature and the problems with the sin nature in verses 11 and 12. So we're talking about the war against the soul, that we are involved in spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare is a doctrine that has really been co-opted by a charismatic heresy over the last 40 or 50 years, so that spiritual warfare is distorted into some sort of battle uh, with Satan and battle with demons, and certainly that is one uh, dimension of spiritual warfare. What, what, but what the Bible teaches is that there are, are three enemies. Enemy number one is the flesh. That's the traitor inside each of us. That is also known as the sin nature. Enemy number two is, the, is Satan. And Satan is the arch enemy of God. And the third enemy is Satan's system of thinking, which is expressed through the biblical term of the world or the cosmos in the Greek, the cosmic system. 
And so we are involved in this war where we have this internal corruption of the sin nature, which is what we're studying in this verse, that wars against the soul and that we are to fight back. problem with a lot of Christians is they have misunderstood the doctrine of grace and they've run up a white flag of surrender because all I have to do is confess sin and I'm okay. And that is a distortion called licentiousness. But that's one trend of the sin nature, as we'll see. The other problem that Christians have is the problem of legalism. And that is taking uh, commands of Scripture and also uh, taking them out of context, and they get all upset. They hear of some Christian who did something. And then all of a sudden they're like, (gasps) and then they start telling somebody, you know what so-and-so did? Well, they've committed the sin of arrogance and the sin of gossip, and while they're judging uh, some other Christian rather than dealing with uh, their own particular uh, sin and just letting God deal with whatever problems another another believer has. So we're involved in this war, this spiritual war or cosmic conflict. And we started last time looking at it, and last time was two weeks ago because we had the conference on Israel last week. So I want to just hit a couple of high points before we move forward in our, our study. Peter says, beloved, a common term, as we saw last time, of the writers of Scripture addressing Christians, not because they love them, but because God loves them. That term beloved means beloved of God. And they are beloved of God because they have trusted in Christ as Savior, and they have received the imputed righteousness of Christ, and the righteous God loves those who are his and in his family who possess righteousness. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. And those terms also resonate, as I've pointed out, with with the uh, Jewish, the Jews who are in the diaspora. And as Peter points out at the beginning, he's talking to Jewish background believers who are scattered in Asia Minor. And the word there is diaspora. Uh, related to that scattering of the Jews that began with the fifth cycle of discipline in the northern kingdom in 722 and the southern kingdom, northern kingdom in 722, southern kingdom in 586 B.C. So it is, they're also uh, citizens of heaven, like every believer in the church age, and we are living in a world that is not our home. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, now we have been studying this last time, and we needed to look at this term, the flesh. Okay, and how it is used in the, in Scripture, it refers to the flesh of a living creature, sort of in the terms of uh, flesh and blood. It is also used to refer simply to the physical body as a synonym for the Greek word soma, which refers to the body. It's also used to refer to the material body in contrast to the immaterial nature. So that it's just talking about body versus sometimes the word spirit is used, not in the technical sense of a human spirit, which we get at regeneration, but in the sense of the immaterial part of man. And then fourth, it is used to refer to the weakness, the corruption of sinful man, his capacity to sin, the nature of sin, the sinful passions and affections. And uh, sometimes you get... uh, so one of the things that I've seen seminary students get all wrapped around the axle on is, do we have a nature? And, and I always appreciated what Dr. Ryrie said is, this is a term, the word nature has a broad range of meanings and nuances. It simply refers to the believers, or in, the human beings rather, capacity to disobey God, the capacity to sin. So these terms, uh, fleshly or fleshy, uh, which comes from the uh, adjective uh, or adverb sarkikos, which is that which pertains to the sin nature. That's that comes out of the sin nature, the desires and the lust patterns of the sin nature. So 
The scripture uses the word flesh to describe this sinful capacity, the corruption which sin has brought. We are all corrupt. There, there was a psychological self-help book that came out back in the 70s by, I think it was uh, Dwyer, who said, uh, I'm okay and you're okay. And the trouble with that is that the Bible says, I'm not okay and neither are you. We are all spiritually dead. We are all corrupt. And this is so crucial to understand as we look at world affairs, as we look at leaders, as we, this political season is every, every leader is corrupt. Uh, every person, even when we make a choice, if you're in a church and you're choosing between two men to be an elder or to be a pastor, they are, they're both corrupt. Even if they're regenerate, they are both corrupt. We are always choosing the lesser of two evils when we're choosing between two fallen, corrupt human beings, uh, even if they are saved by grace. So uh, we, we fail to comprehend the uh, profound significance of this doctrine. Theologically, it's called the doctrine of total depravity. And it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It means that every aspect of our being, the totality of the human being, has been corrupted by sin. Every aspect of our nature has come under the, the judgment of sin and corruption so that all of our desires, thoughts, actions, and trends which uh, orient us away from God uh, and his righteousness are sin. Sin is a, a term that refers to uh, one of the uh, terms that's used in English uh, accurately reflects uh, Hebrew usage is the word trespass. We're violating something. The word trespass means you're violating some law or standard, and all sin is a violation of God's standard. It's not violating your neighbor's standard or your mother or father's standard or your husband or wife's standard. It's violating God's standard. So in that sense, we cannot sin against other human beings, no matter what we do. When David committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, then he tried to cover it up, and part of the way he tried to cover it up by, was by conspiring with his uh, with his general uh, to have uh, her husband Uriah put into the thick of the battle so that he would be killed, which is what happened. So he is an accessory to murder. He is a conspirator uh, to commit murder. Uh, when he confessed, he said, I sinned against Bathsheba. No. I sinned against Uriah. No. He said, I against you and you only have I sinned. So we can only sin against God. We can't sin against other people in that sense. So sin is a violation of God's, of God's standards. Now, in this verse, we have this combination of terms. We have the uh, adjective sarkikos, which, is, which modifies the noun uh, epithemia for uh, lust. So it is, these are lusts showing that they derive from, um, from the flesh. And that should be the definition there. That, that some of these definitions I get I, are, are a little off. Sarkikos means that which is of the flesh, that is, of the sin nature. So, um, and they war against the soul. That's this word stratuo, which is also used in Ephesians chapter 2, describing the strategies, the wiles of the devil. It is. It has to do with these various tactics. So there's a war, there's a battle that goes on, and it's between your ears. You know, it's not this idea that the uh, distorted view of spiritual warfare came up with, which we're doing battle with the devil, uh, in a sense, we do, but but the battle, spiritual warfare, takes place between the ears. It's a matter of living on the basis of truth, walking as God would have us to walk according to the Holy Spirit. And so this is a war against the soul. It is the attempt to destroy your soul. And what we'll see here is the use of this word suke, which uh, we... T- 
often people tend to uh, translate certain words in some sort of rigid way where you see the word soul that has to refer to the soul the immaterial part of man it does but it also is used to refer to life and we'll see this when we get into um, when we get into some of the hebrew terms in genesis chapter one so they war against your life it's an attempt to destroy the believer's life is through through sin. Sin will destroy your life. We could express that in, in the idiom. So when we talk about this, and we talk about this concept of the soul and the, the real us, we have to start breaking this down. And in systematic theology, this is part of the branch of theology, systematic theology, called anthropology. Now, many of you, if you've been to college or you've been to study sociology, you know that there is a discipline in sociology that is called anthropology, and it's the study, often it's related to uh, archaeology, it's the study of the history of human beings, and but it is independent of any divine revelation, so it's all based upon uh, simple empiricism, and it often comes to wrong conclusions because there's not a divine viewpoint framework for understanding the nature of man, and that's what anthropology is. It's from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man, and mankind or human beings, and uh, logos, meaning the study of something. So it's the study of human beings. So biblical anthropology is a study of what the Bible says makes a human being a human being. Now that's the broad category. The subcategory here is homardiology from the Greek word homardios, meaning sin. It's the study of sin. So uh, we're just going to get a little survey tonight on uh, some things related to biblical anthropology and homardiology. So the first point is that the human being is comprised of three components. A physical body that's made from the chemicals of the soil, a soul, and a human spirit. Now, one of the critiques you get from this, there's a couple of things that are going on here that we have to understand. One is that when you talk about soul in the way I'll talk about soul, is you have this critique that comes along and says, well, that's a platonic concept. That's that The early church uh, imbibed of this, and that's not correct. And it, 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 there's elements of that that's correct historically, but this comes from the Scripture. The Scripture clearly make certain distinctions about something called soul and something called spirit. And we have to investigate what the Scripture says about this. Now, a second thing that we need to understand to correct some misconceptions is that there are basically two views of understanding the makeup of a human being. There's only two views. One of these is the view that man has three parts, and those three parts are body, soul, and spirit, and that's called trichotomy. That's the technical term for it, which is just a word that means three parts, trichotomy. There's another view that's called dichotomy. This, this is a lesson I give everybody who goes to seminary, and I have to beat it into their head because so many of the people that I work with were taught wrongly. And then they start reading systematic theologies, and they get the right definition, and all of a sudden they're very confused. Trichotomy means three components, body, soul, and spirit. Even if you're spiritually dead, you still have three parts, you're just missing one. That's not dichotomy. Dichotomy does not refer to a spiritually dead person who only has a body and a soul. That is never how the term has been used in the history of theology. Dichotomy refers to a categorically different position than trichotomy, that man is only composed of a material part and an immaterial part. And all of the terms that you see, such as cardia for heart, uh, pneuma for spirit, word for soul, suke for soul, uh, kidneys for emotions, all these other terms, they're roughly synonymous. You can't categorize as simply body, soul, and spirit. Now, you can read Lewis Berry Chafer, you can read Charles Ryrie, you can read Benjamin Warfield, you can read John Calvin, you can read Augustine, going back to the early 5th century B.C., and they all use these terms the same way. 
trichotomy doesn't mean only the three parts once you're regenerated. It refers to the position that when Adam was created, he had three components, body, soul, and spirit. Even when he lost the spirit, when he died spiritually, we still believe there are only three parts, only one's missing. Now, you probably are confused. Just like every seminary student I've taught for the last 30 years who was misinformed, ill-informed, and got the wrong definitions. But we have to be educated in terms of real theology and not something else. So the human being is comprised of these three components, and the Scripture makes it very clear. But we have to be careful how we understand the term. So let's look at one verse. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. Now, without going into the details of what this verse is like, I was talking about in other areas, it clearly indicates that the Word of God can make a distinction between soul and spirit. That's That can't be disputed here. Now, Another verse that we see here, and the word there for division is the word merismos, which means a division or a partition, clearly showing that, in, that at some level there's a distinction between the human soul and the human spirit. In 1 Corinthians 5.23, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there he clearly identifies three specific components that make up a, re- a regenerate human being. Because he's regenerate, he has he's spiritually alive, so he has a human spirit. Now, the way language works, the way we all use language, is that when we use words like soul and spirit, they're not always used as technical terms. This, when, when, when you read theology and you listen to some people, you'll, you'll listen to some people that say, well, like Dr. Ryrie. Dr. Ryrie took the view that, that, uh, that man is only made up of a material part, an immaterial part, and all these various terms just are basically synonyms for the same thing that describe the immaterial part. I don't agree with that because these two verses can't be dealt with by that position. They clearly distinguish these three components that are there. And... Uh, but when you have the word spirit, for example, sometimes we talk about the spirit as the human spirit, that which, and we'll see this in a little while, that which is gained or that which is lost when Adam sinned, and that which is reacquired in the new birth, in regeneration. But then you get into places in the Old Testament where you have passages that talk about the spirit of Pharaoh. Well, that can, that's not talking about the human spirit. That's using the word spirit in a non-technical sense is just uh, the, the, the immaterial part. So sometimes the word spirit and soul are used synonymously in Scripture. See, when Dr. Ryrie looks at the text and he sees all these places where they're used synonymously or interchangeably, he says, see, you can't make them technical. And my response is, well, they're not technical in those passages. They are technical in Hebrews 4.12 and 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So you have to recognize, see, people who've held the, the trichotomy view have too often tried to make the word spirit always mean human spirit, and the word soul always mean human soul. They don't. It's really clear that in a lot of passages they're used interchangeably, they're, but, but not everyone. It's the exceptions that are important. And these are the two exceptions in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God makes a distinction and a partition between the soul and spirit, according to Hebrews 4.12. So we can't um, just pass by that as if it's not there. So that's the foundation. The Bible clearly in some places makes this distinction, in other places it doesn't. So we have to always take each verse as it, as it comes in context. Okay, the second point is that the physical human body is vitally important and significant as the home of the soul, but also as necessary to the soul and part of the image of God. The Latin term is imago dei. 
Now, this is another one of those important things, because in Platonism, Platonism had the idea that, that the material world was somehow inherently corrupt. He didn't have a time when it was perfect and then it became corrupt because of sin, but it always was corrupt because of the nature of the material. It's, it's, it's inherently corrupt. But the ideal, the ideal uh, is what's perfect. And so the ideal is more perfect than the material, so the material is overlooked, the material is insignificant, and in fact, in its worst forms, the material is in, was inherently sinful. Okay, and this led to a lot of asceticism uh, and other problems as well. So uh, what the Bible teaches is that the body is important, and it's not insignificant, there's no example anywhere in the scripture of a soul existing apart from the body. But see, in Platonism, you had the pre-existence of the souls. So the body really isn't important to the expression of the soul. But in the Bible, we, we have a completely different view. A few weeks ago on Sunday morning, I went through Luke chapter six, sixteen, dealing with the Lazarus and the rich man and the story there. And just a reminder, what we have is that the story that Jesus taught that when um, when this beggar, this homeless man, Lazarus, who begs outside the gates of this wealthy man's home, that when he died, his soul is escorted to Abraham's bosom. And we wonder, well, did, did he just, he's departed from, separated from his physical body, so does he have some sort of body, or is he sort of like Casper the ghost, or is he some sort of glowing protoplasm like you have in Ghostbusters or something like that? Um, no, there's some sort of body there, because when the rich man later sh- dies and shows up in torments, he begs Abraham to let First of all, he can. It, the text says that the the rich man can see Lazarus, so that means he's got some sort of body, some sort of temporary interim body that allows the soul to interact with the what's around him. He can remember what his life was before. He can see uh, the uh, Lazarus, and he a- begs Abraham to let Lazarus put his finger. You got to have some sort of Body, whether it's immaterial or whether it is, and it's temporary, it's an inner, it's not the resurrection body yet, but he can have a finger that he can put in the water and put it on the rich man's tongue. So there's some sort of interim body. My point is that the soul never exists without a body because the soul can't see, hear, taste, touch, feel without a body. The soul is not, I mean, the body is not in significance. That's, that's paganism. That was a Platonic doctrine. So the emphasis in Scripture is that God shapes and forms this body, and it's intentional, and it's designed to be the highest form of expression for the human soul. We see the formation of the body as the first sub-point on point two, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And this is a tremendous picture. The Lord God formed of the dust, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, we've got to look at this a little bit in detail because there's some great stuff here in the, in the language. First of all, we're told that God formed man of the dust of the ground, and this is a Hebrew verb, yatsar. There are three different verbs that are used for create or making something in the Bible. There's the the word bara, which we'll run into. Only God is ever the subject of the word bara. It's a distinct verb indicating something God creates. Only God is ever uh, someone who baras. Another word is asah, which means to make something, usually with already pre-existing materials, whereas bara is usually, but not always, related to uh, creation of something out of nothing, ex nihilo creation. So the Lord God forms man. This is the third word, which is a the word yatsar, which means to form or shape 
or fashion something. You're, you're working with something like an artist or actually like a potter works with clay because it's the noun form of this word that is the Hebrew word for a potter. He's a yotzer. He is, he's one who shapes things. So, so the image here is of God as a, as a sculptor. And he's working with this, this clay and this soil, and he's mixing it up, and he's working it, and he's shaping, and he is, is uh, forming the, the, the physical body of man. Now, what's important is, is later on in the Psalms, the Messiah is speaking and says, a body, saying to God, a body you have made for me. So that tells us that God is sitting here, God the Father is doing this shaping, and he's making this body, and he's thinking that, that one day he's going, the second person of the Trinity is going to be incarnated in this body, and so this body has got to be the best possible body that can be used to express the fullness of God. God didn't just, you know, I mean, think about all the, very interesting creatures that these Hollywood uh, writers have developed in, in all of these different science fiction movies, everything from Alien to, uh, uh, you know, you can go back to to the um, um, to the Warlocks. What was that? That was the old, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now. What? Time Machine, that's right, the old Time Machine movie, you had the Warlocks, and then you have all the different Star Wars and Star Trek creatures, and the Klingons, and Romulans, and Vulcans, and all these different types of creatures. Some are hominoid looking, many of them are not. So you have all these strange creatures. God had an infinite array of shapes that he could have chosen, and he chose this shape because it was the best way to express who he was. He could not have chosen a better way. So he chose that. So the way we are made and shaped, that's why David says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The physical body is significant, and it's important as the expression of the immaterial part of man, which is the image and likeness of God. So... God is forming man out of the dust of the ground. Now, we have various ways in which this word yatsar is used. In Isaiah forty thirty one. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, Barah. It's talking about something only God can do. Now, who's being created here? Jacob. Is that talking about Jacob, the individual, or is this talking about Israel as personified by the progenitor Jacob, the patriarch Jacob? It's talking about Israel. It's talking about God's forming the nation Israel. So he says God created them, and he who formed you. So God is the one who shapes Israel. That's how it's used here. Now, this is interesting because the reason I point this out is in Jeremiah chapter 18, you have the potter and clay analogy. And, and a lot of times that is abused by people, especially Calvinists, who say that, see, the potter can make the clay however he wants to. But it's not a picture of an individual being shaped for salvation or for destruction. It's a picture of God shaping the nation Israel. The potter is God, and the clay in Jeremiah 18 is the nation Israel. It's not talking about individual salvation. It's not talking about uh, predestination to uh, heaven or predestination to eternal judgment. It's talking about God shaping the nation Israel for his own purposes. It's not talking about salvation or soteriology. Isaiah 29, 16. The most uses of this verb are in Isaiah. It doesn't use this verb in Jeremiah 18. It just uses the noun for the potter. Isaiah 29, 16, Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter, Yotzer, be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, that's Asa, he did not make me. Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Again, he's really talking about Israel here. 
So the body's formed. And it's formed from the dust of the ground. And this is the word afar uh, in the Hebrew, which means dust or earth. It can mean ground. It can mean some other things. But God is taking, working with the chemicals of the soil. That's why you can take the uh, human body. And at different times, people have said, well, a body's worth about 65 cents. If you break down the chemicals with inflation, it's probably worth $65 now. But um, this is what's going. God is shaping from the all, the physical body from already existing materials. Um, and it's our bodies come from the soil, so it's going to break down that way, from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But we see this reference many times later in Scripture. So as we go from from uh, Genesis and the old and Job, the oldest book of the Bible, all the way through the New Testament, it each book reaffirms the fact that our human physical human body is just a temporary home for our soul, and it's 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 made from the soil. Job 4.19, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay. That's our physical body. Now, it's interesting to see how this is used through the Scripture. There he references our bodies are houses of clay. Uh, Job 10, verse 9, remember I pray that you have made me like clay. Job is talking to God. I'm, I, I, because I'm made of clay, I'm, I'm, I'm not eternal. I'm finite. And then he says, and will you turn me into dust again? So dust and clay are used as, as synonyms. In Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it? See, again, using that potter clay analogy. And then we get into one of... Uh, my uh, favorite passage in 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And so this is talking about our physical body. And if you, um, I'm just going to flip to it quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of my uh, favorite passages. I often read it at funeral services, and it is, um, it, it, it borrows from this same imagery. Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, so there he describes the house as being that from the earth or from the soil. We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. So if this physical body is destroyed, then it's replaced immediately with a building from God. The soul is not left without a house. It's just going to change up the kind of house. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is, in this earthly house, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life." Okay, so this imagery of the fact that we're in this temper, our body's in this temporary house, but that just because it's temporary doesn't mean it's insignificant. It's important. And you can really use that to develop a lot of things related to um, understanding who we are as people, that, that it's, our physical body's important. It doesn't matter what you look like, what your physical limitations may be, uh, how tall you are, short you are. Uh, how round you are, how thin you are. Uh, it is a body that is prepared by God and is significant for each of us, and so we shouldn't insult it or abuse it. Now, the next thing we see in this verse is that there's an immaterial part that is created. So you have the physical part that is formed or fashioned from already existing materials. Now, one thing I wanted to, I, I didn't bring out, but I wanted to point out. When God is messing around there, as it were, anthropomorphically, getting his fingers dirty in the, in the soil as he's making and shaping and forming that first, first body, where did that material come from? 
You know, one of my favorite creation jokes is about this scientist who's finally created life in the laboratory. And he is so full of himself and so full of his arrogance and how great he is. He challenges God and says, God, we, we don't need you anymore. We can, we can make life, and, and uh, I'll challenge you to a contest to prove just how great we are. And God says, okay, well, you challenge me, but I'll be gracious. I'll let you go first. So you create life first. And so he, he bends over, and the scientist gets some, some uh, dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. You have to make your own dirt. That's what's going on here, is that God has already made the dirt. So when God made the dirt, God's thinking, I'm going to be using this dirt to make a body, and I'm going to be using that body to incarnate the second person of the Trinity. Now, you just figured that out, but God knew it all from eternity past. He's smart like that. He figures most things out, most everything out, quicker than we do. I'd say... Over 95% of the time, God figures things out quicker than we do. 100% is more than 95%, just for those of you who are slow. Okay, so God forms a man from the dust of the ground, and then we have these two words that I've underlined, breathed and breath. Breathed is the word on the left. It's, a, it's a, um, the word nafak, and it is a verb. And it, 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 it indicates God is breathing something. That is so interesting. Because if God is immaterial and he's not an oxygen-based creature, what's he breathing? How does this happen? I think it's related to the Spirit of God, but, but it's just a very, it's probably an anthropomorphic image, but it's, I think it's more than that because of the way this word is used a lot. Uh, it, he, he breathes nafach, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And that's that word on the right, neshama, which means, which means breath. That's the noun. So he's breathing breath, and it has to do with air. So he's, he, in some way, God is pushing air into the lungs, which, which initiates life. There's no life there until that breath occurs. And I think that's when real human life begins, is full human life begins when, when, that breath, when that breath comes. And it's described as a breath of life. This is the whole phrase, neshumahaya, and uh, the word there for... Uh, is is life, and it's in the plural. Now, the I've underlined the word plural here in the chart because it's translated as a singular. And you may have heard somebody say, well, this should be translated breath of lives. No. If you look this up in any standard Hebrew grammar, you will learn that Plural nouns in Hebrew do not always mean plural entities. That often in Hebrew, because of the, the, they're expressing something in an intensified or amplified state or stressing its significance, it will put a word in the plural, not because there's more than one of them, but because it's emphasizing its significance. It's, it's called a plural of amplification or a plural of intensification. Now, we have a parallel type of statement in Job 33, verse 4, where Job says the breath, the neshema, same word, the neshema of the Almighty gives life, but it's a singular noun. It's the same noun, but it's singular. Now, that's, see, some people have tried to say, well, that's talking about spiritual life versus soul life. That's, that's so foreign to the concept because when Job says this in Job 33.4, he's a believer. He's regenerate. So he would have soul life and spiritual, spiritual life if there are two lives. It just The point I'm making is this is the nuance, the idiom of Hebrew and how Hebrew works. Just because it's in the plural doesn't mean there's more than one thing. There are a lot of languages who have similar types of things. So this is the dynamic. First of all, God is creating the material part of man from the material creation. Then he cr- creates from himself 
the immaterial part of man. And the immaterial part, as we'll see, is composed of something called soul and something called spirit. The soul is that which allows a human being to interact with God's creation, and the spirit is that which allows the soul to interact with God. That's the distinction between the two. So that when a person dies spiritually and that human spirit either disappears or is no longer functional, then he can't relate to God. He can only relate to creation. But when we trust in Christ and God gives us new life and we're regenerated or born again, that word born again means something that wasn't there is now coming into existence. And the reason I make that point is because in uh, in a lot of forms of Reformed theology and Reformed sanctification, they get messed up. That's Calvinism. Uh, they get messed up into thinking that that when you get saved, what happens is this, it, it, nothing. You don't get anything new. What regeneration does is it limits your sin nature, which means that if you're really saved, you won't be quite as sinful as you would have been otherwise. That leads to errors and heresies like lordship salvation, which say that the way you can tell if you're truly saved is if you don't sin like you would have if you if you were unsaved. That's the problem. So they have a very uh, shallow view of what regeneration is. Regeneration doesn't mean something's, something was limited. It means something is given birth to that wasn't there before. There is something new that is acquired, and that's that human spirit. So Genesis 2.7 says that, uh, God breathed into the nostrils the Neshemah, the breath of life, and man then became a living being. Now, this is another interesting and important idiom. It's Nefesh uh, Hayah, uh, which literally means a living soul. Nefesh is soul, Hayah is living. So soul, just in the notes on the slide, soul is often used in Scripture as, as a synonym for life. Not it's it, it because it's the presence of that immaterial part that's in man that gives him life that that makes him alive. When the soul departs, he's no longer physically alive, and we don't hear it so much anymore. But I have a headline there that was from the Isle of Wight County Press uh, online that talks about an incident of a ship going down at the end of uh, just as World War One was ending, and the headline was the foggy night when 649 souls were lost. And so you often would hear this. You go into old newspaper accounts of the Titanic, and it talks about how many souls were lost that night. And what it's saying is how many lives were lost that night. See, the words soul and life are used interchangeably. This often happens in Scripture. Thus, living soul doesn't isn't just emphasizing living soul. It means being alive. So God breathed into Adam, and he became alive. He was truly alive. He was fully alive. He had everything a positive. He, there was no sin. So he's, he's fully and totally alive and no, no uh, corruption whatsoever. Now, we see this summarized in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us, referring to all three members of the Trinity, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see two things. First of all, the whole trinity is involved. Second, we see that he's created in a, something called the image and likeness of God, which is related to his ability to rule over creation. So man, the imageness, the image and likeness of God is talking about his ability to rule as God's representative. And ultimately, that's because of his his uh, immaterial capacities, his self-consciousness, his mentality, uh, his volition, and his conscience. He's able to rule over God's creation as God's representative. So God created man in his image. In his image, God created them male and female. So there's a distinction made. Both are equally in the image of God, but there is this distinction that's made even at the soul level between male and female. Now, that is so important today because all of us are Christians are living in a world today where you are the most egregious criminal 
if you don't believe that male and female are interchangeable, and that is impacting every aspect of society, you can't work for most companies if they, you'd be fired if they knew that you believed that male and female were not interchangeable. Now think about that, because that has great significance for how believers can learn to live in the world on the basis of wisdom like Daniel. Daniel's the great example from the Old Testament of how a believer operating on divine viewpoint has to live in a, in a pagan environment that completely rejects everything that he believes. And he's not always butting his head against Nebuchadnezzar. He learns to work in wisdom, and that's what we need to do. And I've seen politicians that are Christians just absolutely destroy themselves because they don't understand how to be a Daniel, how they can go to Washington, D.C., and hold on to their biblical principles and not compromise them, but not bash their head against everybody else. And if you are a Christian and you're working for Exxon or you're working in a school district or you're working in uh, Washington, D.C., you have to learn to be a Daniel. If you try to operate uh, where you're constantly butting up against the human viewpoint and paganism of those around you, all you're going to do is, is cause trouble and destroy uh, your career. We have to learn to be Daniels. And this is in one area of them. We, we believe that men and women are inherently different. It's not just physiological. It is also psychological, it, biblical psychology. Now, here's how we're made up, just to put it in a graphic and visualize it. We have the human body that God forms from already existing materials that he created. Then he breathes into Adam a soul that is composed of self-consciousness, which is where we can look in the mirror and say, oh, I know who that is. That's my mother. Oops, no, wait a minute. That's somebody else. That's my father. We see our parents as we get older. Isn't that funny? We look in the mirror and we see one or the other of our parents looking back at us. But when your dog looks in the mirror, he doesn't see himself. He sees another dog or a bird or animals. They don't have self-consciousness. We think. Animals have a measure of thinking, but they don't think critically or analytically or abstractly like human beings do because that's a function of the imago dei. We have a conscience. We know what's right or wrong at a metaphysical level. Dogs know what's right or wrong because they're trained that way through discipline and through the training not to do some things and to do other things. But they don't have, when they say, when they, you know, we've all had dogs that they know they're disobeying us. They look at us and you can see that they know exactly what's going on. That they, they, they look at you to make sure, see, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But they don't have a conscience like we do. They just know that 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 if they don't do if they do certain things they're going to get get paddled or they're going to get disciplined in some other way. A human conscience is based on eternal categories of right and wrong that are embedded in the human soul. And then we have personal responsibility, our volition. We make choices. But there was another dimension to this that Adam had what we call the human spirit, which is that immaterial element that intersected and interfaced with the different elements of the soul to enable the human soul to relate to God so that his thinking was oriented to God, his self-consciousness was related to his God consciousness, his conscience was related to eternal absolutes, and his volition was oriented to doing what God wanted him to do. But what happened is that when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. He lost something, whether it just became non-functional or whether it actually left him. We don't know. I think his his descendants were born without it. Um, but what, one way or the other, it's non-functional, and he acquires a sin nature that corrupts the entire soul 
And he's spiritually dead because he cannot relate to God. He is spiritually separated from God. So we have a human body, but there's no human spirit anymore. It's gone. We're just left. So, so it's, it's, um, he's spiritually dead. He still moves around as if he's alive, but he's not. He's the walking dead. Every human being is a spiritual zombie. We are born spiritual zombies, and we're spiritually dead, and we're involved in a zombie war. I think we could work with that a little bit, maybe come up with a new illustration. And then the instant we trust in Christ as Savior, that human spirit is restored, and we become spiritually alive so that we can think God's thoughts after him. We can renew our mind. We can think in terms of God's absolutes and know what is eternally right and eternally wrong. So that's that second point, what the image of God relates to. It involves both, not because our physical body is shaped like some shape that God has, but because our physical body is shaped the way it is to be the highest and best expression of the immaterial part of man that reflects in a finite way uh, the attributes of God. Third point, in the fall, man's nature became, or in the fall, man's nature becomes corrupt, grammar fault. Yet the imago dei, though corrupt, defaced, deformed, was not eradicated. Some people teach that, that we lost the image of God, but that's not true. Genesis 9-6, this is in the covenant with Noah, in the Noahic covenant, God gives authorization to have capital punishment, to execute murderers. And he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Well, why, why so extreme? Well, because it will uh, discourage others from committing murder. No, that's not what it says. It's not preventative. Uh, do it because you need to have vengeance. No, that's not what, what it says. It's not about vengeance. You often hear people say that. And, and you know, I just, I just go ballistic. I hear, whenever there's a capital punishment issue and you hear it on the news, you always hear these people come out. And on either side, one person says, well, we have to have uh, vengeance. And others say, well, it's not about vengeance. No, it's about justice. It's not about vengeance. It's about justice. It's never about revenge, biblically. Uh, capital punishment is about justice, that somebody has forfeited the right to life. Why? Because they have attacked a representative of God. It's a, a hot, one of the highest forms of blasphemy is to commit murder. Because you're not just killing a human being, you're killing someone who is in the image of God. So when God explains why you do this, he says, for in the image of God, he made man. Even after the fall, even though the image has been corrupted and defaced and deformed, it's still there. He's still a representative of God, even if he's spiritually dead, and even if he is a, a horrible criminal. He still has value because he's in the image of God, but he's killed an image bearer, so therefore he's sacrificed, forfeited his right to live. And that's even this idea is even stated in the New Testament. The idea that man is still in the image of God, I mean. In 1 Corinthians 11:7, talking about the head coverings and hair and those things, says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. So this is talking about corrupt, fallen man, even in uh, uh, even the New Testament. He's still, even though fallen, he's still in the uh, image and glory of God. Now, just wrap up at the end of this point. This is a quote I ran across from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, uh, volume 2, page 169. He says, Two exceedingly important truths emerge from the vast array of theological writings regarding that image in which man was created, namely, A, that fallen man bears the inalienable image of God. Fallen man bears the inalienable image of God, and B, that man is injured by the fall to the extent that only redeeming grace can rescue him. 
Both of these truths are deeply embedded in the Scriptures, regardless of any seeming contradictions they may present. Neither truth may be modified or surrendered. It would be easy for uninstructed minds to declare this whole discussion concerning the image a mere battle of words and quite void of practical value. But it is here that the true ground is discovered for anthropology, soteriology, and eschatology. You can't understand what the Bible says about man if you don't understand these two things. You can't understand what the Bible teaches about salvation if you don't understand these two things. And you can't understand what the Bible teaches about last things or future things unless you understand these things. So biblical anthropology and homardiology are, are critical. So we'll come back. Those are the first three points on, um, on the nature of man and this war uh, of the sin nature against the soul, and we'll continue with this under point four next uh, Thursday night. Father, thank you for this time that we can come to understand who we are a little bit better as creatures created in your image and likeness in order to carry out a mission and to glorify you. Father, yet sin has entered into human history and corrupted us. We can do nothing to reverse this on our own, but you gave a perfect solution through Jesus Christ. And through regeneration, we can begin that process of recovery that is only completed in ultimate sanctification when we're absent from the body, face-to-face with you, without a sin nature. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue this study, that we may recognize that we're in a war with our own sin nature and that we are not to give up, give in, We are to abstain from fleshly lusts, but we can only do that through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand these things as we go through these lessons in Christ's name. Amen.